Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. All right. Welcome to Wednesday Night Networking. I'm uh, really happy that everybody's here tonight. Um, we started these up uh, back in December because we were concerned that we're missing our networking in all the conferences and things we were doing this year. Uh, the, the conferences that I was attending or, or speaking at just seemed so impersonal. So I thought, you know what, we need just a networking night. And it has been way more popular than I ever anticipated. It's been fantastic. So I really appreciate everybody who, who attends these. This wouldn't be possible, though, without a couple of sponsors. Um, the Gateway Research Organization, or GROW. Um, Amber's representing GROW tonight, and Jay's on here as well. They can give a wave. Um, and the Greywooded Forge Association. Both of those uh, are applied research associations that are in Alberta. Um, they do extension. They do little, uh, obviously, some research and some trials and, and help share information out to the producers. So they're a not-for-profit organizations, and I've been involved with them for over 20 years. And I believe it's a, a real powerful way to, to get information out to the producers. Um, if you, I know you're in, you know, different provinces or different states, I'm sure you have some not-for-profit organizations doing the same thing there. So by all means, get a, become a member, also become a, a director. Then you get to, you know, kind of aim the direction of, of, of the education in your, in your area. So I just think they've been the greatest thing here in, in Alberta. So tonight's a really special night for me. I've got one of my, uh, greatest and I was going to say oldest mentors, but I'm not going to say that. He's been a long time mentor of mine, um, uh, Jim Garish. Uh, boy, when I was just fresh out of uh, college, you know, just eating up this stuff uh, on regenerative agriculture, Jim was one of my biggest mentors back then. He was a, a great uh, resource and information. I, I, I've seen him, I don't know, many, many times. And I really appreciate all the information I've got from him tonight. So uh, tonight, uh, Jim, he, he's actually got two two books out. You got more more than two, don't you? I know Mig and Kick the Hay Habit. And then I did a second edition of Alan Nation's Quality Pasture. Right, right. You bet. So if you have, you want to pick up uh, one of those books, uh, they're, they're well worth it by all, all means. So we got a, a topic. When I asked Jim what topic he wants today, he kind of confused me and he's keeping me confused. But his topic is time versus space. And if anybody knows uh, Jim, I mean, we're definitely talking grazing here. So we're going to get into that tonight. Um, I'm going to let uh, Jim kind of introduce himself a little bit and let him introduce the topic tonight. And then we'll see where it goes. We're allowed to go off topic. You know, if you've got a, a question that kind of leads us off topic, that's fine. Uh, we're networking, so it doesn't matter where we go tonight. But uh, that's where we're going to start. So, Jim, you want to take it away? Okay. Thank you, Steve. And thanks for the opportunity to participate in this. You know, I haven't been to Canada in over a year, and I suspect that that is probably my longest absence from somewhere in Canada for, you know, at least 20 years. So this is, um, uh, it's been a very different uh, time for everyone. I haven't, I told Steve and Amber earlier that I haven't traveled away from home on business since uh, early October, and I'm loving it. You know, it, it was always nice to you know come up and do the field days and the grazing schools and various workshops and things in Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario. I've worked, you know, been in all of those provinces doing 
programs, uh, not real recently. So, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to reconnect with uh, a lot of folks that I know up north of the border. And then, of course, there's people from uh, down here in the States also. So uh, I think uh, the majority of you probably know something about me. I'll try to give a uh, one minute introduction. I grew up on a crop farm, not a livestock farm in Illinois. Grew up in very conventional agriculture. Um, worked for the University of Missouri for 22 years, three months in grazing research at their Forage Systems Research Center. Uh, the MIG book, Management Intensive Grazing book, was written while I was at Missouri. Uh, I left there in 2003. We moved to Idaho in 2004. Uh, I should mention the whole time we were in Missouri, we had our own uh, personal farm there, as well as having the research station. Uh, moved to Idaho for recreational lifestyle in 2004. We're coming up April 1st, will be our 17th anniversary here. Uh, by happen chance, fell into the opportunity to manage one component of a uh, larger ranch. So we manage a primarily irrigated pasture unit up here. So I learned to work with uh, center pivots. We do flood irrigation also. And then I write stories and uh, do consulting. I used to do a lot of workshops, shops and seminars, 30 to 40 a year. I have done four in-person speaking events in the last 12 months. So um, that's who I am. That's what I do. Jim also has been writing in the Stockman Grass Farmer for many, many years. Um, I'm going to put a link to that, too, if anybody wants uh, wants to yeah. read a little bit more about what he does. Over, over 20 years. Yeah, it's hard to come up with a topic every month when you've been doing it that long. Uh, but fortunately, my perspective on things has evolved over those 20 years. So I can write about some of the same topics with a different perspective. So we try to keep it a, um, a little bit fresh there. Okay. Uh, you know, one, one idea that I had had that wouldn't work is, you know, when you're talking about me introducing myself, hell, we could have done like a Wikipedia, an open source uh, introduction <laughs> and seen how many off the wall, bizarre things you could have learned about me doing that, but it's probably better <laughs> that we don't. So um, shall we proceed to the topic? Do you want to just kind of go over what you had in mind with the topic, Jim? Because I think I looked at Steve when I read that and I'm like, what does he mean by time versus space? <laughs> so I would love to hear kind of what you you were thinking when you came up with that topic. Okay. Um, now, Steve said he wasn't going to call me his oldest mentor. Um I did just turn 65 last month. So that, you know, gives you perspective of what my age is. So I went, I went to college, uh, undergraduate and graduate school in the 1970s. In grazing science in the 1970s, it was almost entirely about stocking rate. The idea that you have this piece of ground and you put X number of animals on it and you leave them till it's gone what you know we would commonly call continuous grazing which you know in scientific literature they prefer, prefer to call set stocking but almost all research 
and the education was geared around set stocking, which is spatial management. The idea is that you put the appropriate number of animals out there, and that appropriate is based on not degrading the resource and getting an acceptable level of animal performance. Now, we all know that this space, this piece of land, does not grow the same amount of forage on every day of the year. It changes over time. All right. So that is the perspective of education. Um, God, I hate to say this, 50, 50 years ago, basically. Oh, and 60 years ago, 70 years ago. But oddly not so much 80 years ago. 80 years ago, there were things like rotational grazing. I saw a publication many years later in life, a publication from the University of Minnesota for dairy pastures that was advocating daily rotation of dairy cows. You know, kind of what we're talking about doing on a grass-based dairy these days. So prior to, and very often we use World War II as the break point in a lot of things about agriculture. We had a different agricultural basis prior to World War II. After World War II, we look at things that came out of World War II, nitrogen fertilizer. Of course, it came out as an explosive. Ammonium nitrate was originally created to be an explosive, not a fertilizer. Uh, white phosphorus, Willie Pete, was a weapon. Synthetic fertilizer, phosphate, phosphate fertilizers came out of that. And then we can get in all to the, the pesticides, all of those things, heavy equipment, basically the chemistry and the industrial technology of World War II created the agriculture that most of us, except young pups like Stephen Amber, um, that most of us grew up in. It was a, uh, a change in the whole world. That was what conventional agriculture became. E even, you know, we talk about farming, it's, uh, you know, get bigger, get out. Our famous uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts in the 1970s, it was get bigger, get out. It wasn't about farming more intelligently. It wasn't about farming more effectively. It was spatial, 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 get bigger or get out. So we, we are very spatially oriented in farming and ranching. All right, so probably, uh, you know, we talk about books that change our lives and things like that. And the book that really changed my perspective, um, and it took me a long time to digest it and understand it, was Andre Voisin's book, Grass Productivity. So, when I was in school, no textbook that we used had the term stock density in it. No textbook that we used and no professor in any class talked about the role of time management in grazing response. It was all spatial. Andre Voisin talked about the critical element that the management of time was in grazing management. Um, now, a lot of people recognize something that they called the rest period. Now, we usually call that the recovery period. 
because you can't graze cattle on a pasture all summer, take them away when winter comes, and then go back in the spring and say you rested the pasture. Well, you did rest the pasture, but it had no recovery. Recovery has to be active growth during the active growing season. So uh, Vazan did talk about the um, importance of the recovery period, but what really changed and was different, he talked about why it was so important to make the grazing period shorter, 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 shorter. And as we make the grazing period shorter, 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 stock density goes up. He talked about stock density. He talked about time management. And I read that book um, in my first couple of weeks of graduate school and said, well, this is interesting. And then got completely indoctrinated away from time management to space management. Then when I went into the research business at the University of Missouri, we started out, uh, I started out mostly thinking in spatial terms. We have this pasture, we split it into, you know, 16 equal sized pastures and we rotate through them. But we really didn't think that the important part of it was the time they spent in each of those pastures. It was still having the right number of animals for that space. It was still spatially oriented. And then as the years went by, it just became increasingly apparent to me that it's when you start focusing on the management of time that your whole perspective of grazing and what you can accomplish changes. The um, when we talk about getting, and when I first started doing, you know what we call MIG. There's plenty of other names around. Um, you know, I was telling farmers this would be back in the late '80s, the early '90s, that yeah, you can get a 20 to 40 percent increase in carrying capacity or stocking rate. You know, if you manage in this way. And then it went to 50 to 100%. And probably our greatest, our best success story working with a ranch was a 400% increase in carrying capacity because we changed management from being spatially oriented to being time oriented. That is the power of using time as your focus of management. And so that's the space and time relationship or the space and time conflict that I'm talking about, Steve. Are you out of the dark now? I am totally with you. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that's a, a huge, con uh, you know, the question that I get so many times, the contradiction between, you know, um, time and time and uh, space. For me, I always get the question, well, how many acres do I make my paddocks, right? They're gonna, they're gonna fence it off. And, and to me, that that's not even a question. To limit or to reduce overgrazing, we need to manage the time, right? That's a huge change that I've been talking to. You know, I've been, I learned it, you know, obviously I'm a student of gyms because I'm in the same, same uh, wavelength here. Time is the most important thing when you're talking about overgrazing. It's the timing of the grazing. It's the timing of the rest. It, it doesn't matter how many animals. It doesn't matter how many uh, acres each paddock is. It's more a matter of the timing on when the grazing is, right? One producer could have, I'm just going to pick some random numbers here. They could have 16 paddocks. They could have, you know, the same number of animals, 
one of them could be overgrazing and one of them might not be overgrazing right because it all is it's all about the timing of the grazing it has nothing to do with the number of animals and the you know the size of the paddocks so i agree 100 percent uh love the introduction jim that's that's perfect amber do you got a question for us we do brian english are you up are you ready to go yeah i'm here awesome uh jim i was just wondering how long how many years did it take you to increase your um your uh, density up 400% from when you started. Okay. This is not on this ranch. This is a client ranch. Two years. Oh, okay. Because we weren't changing the productivity of the range itself. We were changing the grazing distribution across that range. So you, you were going to daily moves then? Uh, they were three to five days. Okay. But, you know, there was stock water developed. The, the big problem on that place was, um, you know, typically two plus mile travel distance to water. Okay. And so by creating a stock water system and the stock water system went in first with no uh, subdivision fences put in and just having the water distribution uh, brought two to three hundred percent increase in AUDs per acre because the animals would go everywhere. When the fence system was added in to where they could control the time, you know that they were concentrated around that at that water point, then moved to another. That picked up the another 130 percent. Uh, over time, the so we did that project in 2005 and 2006 is when we started that. And over time, the health and productivity of the range has increased. And I, I have to admit, I have not talked to them for five or six years, and I'm not sure where their AUD per acre yield is now. Uh, it could be increased. They did go from feeding hay for five months of the year to basically feeding hay five days of the year, just when, you know, they would have really severe weather and some years they, you know, feed no hay at all. Oh, uh, just today I was pricing out a winter uh, watering system because we usually bring our cattle home to our home half every winter. But my son pointed out, we're bringing the nutrients home every year and we need to spread it out throughout the whole farm. So yeah, we are looking to winter some cattle about a mile away from home. So mm -hmm. um, that's a good idea. I mean, I've known that all along, but uh, um, it takes someone else to point it out to me. So I guess that's a good thing. That, that That's where on most ranches in Western U.S. and Western Canada and Western Mexico, actually the whole Western strip of North America, the greatest increases in carrying capacity come from water development and just getting more effective utilization across more of the landscape. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'll add to that a little bit, uh, Brian. Um, I went to a ranch in Nevada. I think it was in like three different States. I went down there and did, did some consulting. Um, it was a million acres. Basically, to me, it was in the desert, but we drove across this ranch. It took us all day to get across the ranch, basically. And we got to this one point and he stopped me and said, do you want to know why the grass looks so good here? 
and I'm looking around going, what, what grass? Like I see tumbleweeds and that's about all I see, cactuses. And he said, well, because we're nine miles from our nearest water source, right? Like there's no, you know, they were continuously grazing, obviously this entire, this whole ranch basically are very, very limited movement. And uh, first thing I said, water development, right? I mean, there was, I saw mountains up there. I said, you know, do you get any moisture? We need to do some water development here because the animals never got to there. Right. Like they need to water development is huge when you're when you're managing land, especially large, large uh, acres as well. So yeah. and, 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 and that distance, you know, we, we work on a half mile travel distance to water as being optimal in what I would call rolling to rugged range country. You know, if it's dead flat range country, we'll go up to three quarters of a mile. You know, there's been research done in uh, U.S., Australia. Um, that pretty clearly shows that there's an economic reduction in grazing utilization once cattle are traveling more than a half to three quarter miles to water. So basically that would mean uh, a water source at least every quarter, right? Because if it was in the middle of the quarter, you'd have a half or uh, the distance between the quarters. Right. Well, if, if, if you place a stock tank at the center of a section. So you have four quarters coming to that. 78% of the land area will be within one half mile of water. 22% will be still out of that reach. It's a 4,000. If you wanted to have everything covered to be within a half a mile of water, it's a 4,000 foot square grid. Every 4,000 foot gives you a perfect half mile radius coverage. Jim, one more question before I let you go. Um, your book about um, not using hay, I haven't read it yet, but uh, I looked it up today. Is that for Western Canada as well? Steve, why don't you address that one since you live up there and I don't? Oh yeah. I mean, there's limitations in every environment, um, but you know, reducing the amount of hay you're feeding or making at least is uh, most environments is quite economical. I think uh, uh, Jim will agree with me too. Bale grazing is a technique that works very well. It's great at improving land. Um, doesn't mean you have to make the hay, right? You can buy the hay from other people. I, I quite enjoy buying nutrients from other producers and importing them in, into my land to heal it. So um, just because you're kicking the hay habit doesn't mean you're not feeding hay. Yeah, not, not necessarily. Yeah, I, I, in, in the book, and I say this at a lot of my seminars, it's far more important to stop making hay on your property than it is to stop feeding hay on your property. And that stop making hay is really because the equipment, the inputs for making hay are so much higher relative to the value of our products than they were 40 years ago. Uh, the whole you know, let's bail up tons and tons of hay and feed them all winter, made economic sense uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago because of the relative value of cattle to the price of equipment. Uh, it does not make sense today. There there are exceptions. I'm going to say uh, that that's been my, you know, my mentality for many, many years. I will admit that I went to a farm in uh, Ontario quite a few years ago 
And I walked out there and they had a whole bunch of haying equipment out there. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? I, I know, I know where, where we got to go with this. Uh, so we sat down and we started doing a economic analysis and for fun, I just said, Hey, let's do your hay enterprise first. Uh, like, yeah, I'm, you know, I thought I knew something and I, uh, Right off the bat, I said, "Okay, well, you know, what are your costs? You know, let's, you know, how many bales are you going to make?" And I got our 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 uh, big number going, and then I said, "Okay, let's work on our costs. You know, what what what's the cost of twine and all the other things that you're putting into it?" And then I got to I said, "What's what's your land rent?" He's like, "Nothing." I'm like, "Okay, well, okay, typical farmer, right? He doesn't he doesn't charge himself rent for his land. So if you were to rent from somebody else, what would what would you have to pay?" He said, "Nothing." I'm like, okay. If you were to rent your land out, what would you be able to get it for? He said, nothing. Like, what? Okay, wait, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Um, so the, the situation was there was two farmers in this entire valley right outside of the city. And all of the meadows were public lands and they just, you know, divvied them up. So basically they had rent-free land. And when we went through the numbers, he was actually making money on his haying. Uh, he, you know, he didn't have brand new equipment, but it was working and he was hauling in the hay and fertilizing his land. And when we went through the numbers, like it, I was proven wrong in my mind. I didn't tell him that in advance. Of course, I didn't tell him I was already thinking that, but in that situation, he was making a profit and improving his land and, and right. So every environment's different. I would say in my mind right now, 95% of the time, um, making hay is not making a lot of money. But there's there are exceptions. I'm not going to say everybody's wrong, <laughs> but uh, I, I was proven wrong once. So I never put that out there that, you know, you, you can never do one profit center because uh, it's possible in some environments. But not very many. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that story. All right. Um, next up, we have David Chalik. Okay, he said, I had the opportunity to listen to a presentation by Alan Savory, a Zimbabwean ecologist and a livestock farmer. Elmer brought him up. Jim Garish, what are your thoughts on his approach? Uh, philosophically, Savory and myself are pretty close on most things. I do think that some of the things he talks about, and specifically, you know, herd effect are much more applicable in dryland environments than they are in uh, productive environments. You know, right off, I can't think of anything that in, in a true rangeland environment, I cannot think of anything that I would say, oh, I disagree with Alan Savory on that. I yes. think the, the application of some of those principles to wetter environments is problematic. I, I bring it up because there are some very... Uh, you know, low low uh, rainfall areas in in parts of eastern and and southern Alberta as well as, as Saskatchewan, and I thought it was rather remarkable. You know, his tenant that you know that very intensive grazing, and although you've already talked about nutrients, et cetera. Anyway, uh, thank you. I could add to that a little bit. I, I believe that environments change, right? The principles are there. The, the, the basically the grazing concepts that. There's lots of different schools of thought. Uh, they're all pretty well, you know, on the same same wavelength. That we've got little differences. Jim's is a little bit different than Alan's. It's the same principles. We just have to adjust them and for for our environments and for our farms and and to make them work for us. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the things that Jim says. I agree with a lot of the things that Alan says. Um, we're all on the same team, and 
there's just minor tweaks between environments that we have to adjust for. Um, I, I, I strongly, I, you know, I, I think both of them are, are very applicable, applicable to their environments for sure. You bet. So I, I, I would add, I'd, I ask, so who was Alan Savory's greatest mentor when it comes to his thoughts on grazing management? I would say uh, uh, the book you already quoted today. Andre Vazan. Yeah, exactly. Savory is almost chapter and verse for Zahn. Yeah. It all stems from the same same thought process, the same uh, the same background. Yeah, which, by the way, and many of you have seen me do show these slides at presentations. James Anderson basically wrote my MIG book in 1777 in Scotland. The only difference is he had to work with stone fences and we get electric fence. I myself would much rather move electric fence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't see you moving stone fence. You might might hurt a couple muscles there. <laughs> I think that's one of the most amazing things about regenerative grazing and about the leaders in regenerative grazing is that so many actually agree with each other. Like there might be little differences in, in some of the ways that everybody does things, but overall, you know, there, there's not a lot of debate when it comes down to exactly how to get it done. Next up, we have Clay. Clay, are you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready. If you can hear me. Um... Sure can. So a, your your mic quality is really low there, Clay. <laughs> I'm going to trade this piece of junk in. Uh, I guess you mentioned that you had some perspectives that evolved, and I thought it would be interesting to hear both Steve and Jim share some perspectives that have evolved or maybe some that are continuing to evolve. And then I got another question about the value of wasted hay, if, if you'll indulge me. We'll certainly indulge you because I, I saw over there on the chat the thing about the way today. Uh, so when we first started doing these more intensive grazing systems in Missouri in the, uh, oh, about 1983, you know, in research, we did almost all of our uh, grazing cell layouts using a travel lane going to a single or maybe two water points. And in probably 1986 or 1987, I wrote my first kind of, you know, guide sheet for MU on grazing management. And I recommended that approach on the basis of it is cheaper to take the cattle to water than to take water out to the cattle. What I learned over the next several years after that is it is much more cost effective to take water to the cattle than have cattle walking to the water. And part of that is because mm -hmm. cattle walking to the water put a whole lot of manure into that lane. And it's mining productivity out of your pastures, depositing it in the lane. And, you know, after I figured that out and, you know, I wrote some other things, <clears throat> it always embarrassed me that I had written that. And of course, it was not a very widespread publication. And I was thankful for that and said, oh, nobody knows I ever said that. Hell, you know what happened? Five years ago, it showed up on the internet. <laughs> and uh, so that, that, that was a perspective that really changed is, and you know, I've already alluded to it, the power of changing low productivity on 
low livestock productivity on rangeland comes from better water distribution and getting them to use more of the landscape. So that's a huge piece of it. Another perspective that uh, I had to change, and I, again, I did this a long time ago when I was back in the research business, is that uh, ranching, cattle farming is a land-based business. And because it's a land-based business, we should be doing all of our assessments of productivity and profitability on a per acre basis, not a per head basis. One of the most misleading things that the universities have done and the cattle industry has done is this focus on individual animal performance, you know, the, the, the weaning weight, the milk production per cow, the average daily gain of the stocker not the, its relationship to uh, land. And again, I remember and this was, e again, either late 80s or early 90s. I started, you know, at the, at the national, comp the professional conferences, uh, American Society of Agronomy, American Forge and Grassland Council. I started presenting grazing study results on a per acre performance basis rather than the per head that everyone else was doing. And you talk about kicking the hornet's nest. No, that's not the way we do it. I took a lot of derision for reporting stocker trials on, you know, profit per acre rather than performance per head. Mm. So the, those are two big perspectives I can think of right now. Steve, you want to throw, add something in from your side and I'll see if I can think of one more. Yeah, no, the alleyway thing for me as well. I mean, I'll tell people now that, you know, the alleyway is cheap to put in, right? If you're cash flow crunched, put the alleyway in, get it going, at least start managing the pastures, right? If, if your fence is probably the most important thing to start managing graze period, rest period. If you have to put the alleyway in, the fence is the cheapest way, but as you get some cash flow going, try and develop your water systems as soon as possible. So I agree. That was one of mine as well. Uh, the other one for me that was a big perspective change was uh, residue. Right. I, I followed all the grazing concepts. I, you know, I was a good, great graze period, good rest period. I was trying to, you know, increase my stock density and, and trying to have good animal impact. And the whole time, you know, I was, a, you know, young farmer starting out, having to put uh, food on the table and diapers on bums. I would not leave enough residue because if I got one more day out of every paddock, right at the end of the year, that's an extra thousand dollars that's in my pocket. And, and I wasn't leaving enough residue and you know what? It came clear through me, you know, about 10 years after I got into this big time is like, wow, I accidentally left too much residue one time and that pasture the next year just took off. So, you know, if I could go back 20 years and tell my something, one thing to do better, it's to leave more residue, cover that ground and, and build that, water holding capacity, build that, you know, fix the water cycle. Um, when we have a drought year, uh, my neighbors have a drought now and I don't, right? Like I can go two months without any, any uh, you know, without a drop of rain and my pastures don't even hesitate because I have that water holding capacity built up in that, in that thatch layer and that residue that I'm leaving. Boy, before that I was, you know, I thought I was doing everything right, but boy, that residue was a, a huge miss that I had. Uh, on to that other question uh, on a previous 
Wednesday night networking, Dallas Mountain alluded to a value of wasted hay near $40 a ton. Does that mean if I pay $120 a ton for hay, the nutrient offset means I only paid $80 a ton? Or is that an incorrect conclusion from that math? Uh, does that change with higher quality hay that doesn't get wasted as much? Okay, uh, that, that that's a real interesting question on how to look at that. If you are not applying any fertilizer on your place and you're buying hay for $120 and you're crediting $40 of nutrient value uh, being returned to the soil, I, you're, not offsetting, you're not offsetting a purchase synthetic fertilizer cost by feeding that hay. So you, I, I don't think you can discount it in your budgeting that way. Now, by bringing those nutrients in, you should be adding, uh, increasing the long-term productivity of that land. So I think there is real value in importing hay uh, to improve fertility, Just, but in, in the way you handle it in the budget, if you're buying fertilizer and now you're eliminating buying commercial fertilizer and replacing it by feeding hay, uniformly across the land, then yes, you take a credit for that nutrient content in the hay. But to me, there ha you have to be offsetting some cost to actually claim that, oh, I just made $40 by buying this hay and not buying fertile or by buying this hay. I guess they're justifying, you know, the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I, I, uh, Amber is going to complain because she's heard this story more than twice. Years ago, I had a herd of cows and I was doing custom grazing because I had I didn't have enough cows to cover the land that I managed. And uh, I started, you know, understanding a gross margin analysis and, and started doing some numbers. And I realized that my custom grazing was making a better profit than my cows were. And I was doing things well with my cows, but they were losing money. So I decided to sell my cows. And I went all into custom grazing. And then a couple of years into that, I realized that, wait a minute, I'm not bringing in all that extra feed, right, from bale grazing. My land isn't improving. I'm not, I'm not getting that nutrients in because I'm just summer grazing now. So was there a value there? Was there a value to those cows that I owned that were bringing in a feed? So I, I, I remember I got a government study went through it and they, they figured out, um, I'm going to top of my head here from 20 years ago. So don't quote these numbers, but a ton of hay was about, you know, every ton of hay that went through a cow, there was about $16 worth of NKP and S that came out the back end, right? Whatever. That doesn't really matter. But the six, I, I worked that out and I came up with a value for every, every day that I'm feeding a dry cow on my land, I came up with a value of 30 cents. Okay. So Let's use some uh, easy numbers. Let's say it costs me a dollar fifty to feed a cow a day in the wintertime. If thirty cents of that is actually nutrients that's going back to my land, then I need to equate that. Okay, I've got to equalize that. My cows were bringing it in; it cost me a dollar fifty, but thirty cents of it was going to my custom grazing operation as fertilizer or what I've learned since then is not necessarily fertilizer, but more water holding capacity. Cause I'm leaving that residue out there. The big gain I get is water holding capacity. So if it cost me a dollar 50 to feed my cows minus the 30 cents, was it really cost me a dollar 20 to feed my cows? 
and my custom grazing operation had to pay me 30 cents or pay the cows 30 cents because they were getting the benefit. Cash flow wise, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't show up in my bank account. But when I'm looking at a uh, cow profit center and a custom grazing profit center, that's a real number. Without the cows, I don't get that fertility and that water holding capacity. So I had to, I had to, you know, play a, a number back and forth somehow on paper. And that's, I came up with 30 cents. That was years ago. So maybe that's inflated now, but I, I still use that 30 cents per head per day as a value of feeding imported hay on my land. Now it's got to be imported. If you're just, if you make your own hay and you're feeding it on your own land, you're, you know, stealing from Peter to pay Paul. But if you can buy it and bring that in and put it on your land, that water holding capacity and that fertility added to your land, I, I believe it's worth it. So there is a value there. Now, can you actually put it, you know, in your bank account? No, not really. Over the next 10, 15 years, yeah, I believe it will go in your bank account. I haven't heard that one too much, Steve. You, okay. you can repeat it a couple more times before I start telling you that that's enough. Um, <laughs> next up, we have the grass whisperer. Are you ready to go? Uh, I think so. There we go. We hear you. I guess and we there can I see am. you too. Look at that. Hey. Yeah. Hey, um, hi, Jim. Hi, Steve. So uh, I got a question about drought. So the so droughts coming across the the U.S. and it's it's uh, it's in New York actually. I just saw in the news last night that half half of New York is under some kind of drought stress. It's only March. So I'm wondering as I work with other farmers in a professional capacity is what are the top things to plan for? We haven't even started grazing yet. And then how cautious should I be in planning for something I don't know that won't go away? I'm wondering if you should not stock very heavy. You should have a lot of hay in the barn. What are the approaches? Cause you guys are, always used to more dry weather than we are we're we're getting uh we're getting a wake up call so i'm wondering what your strategies might be several things one is we all know that the 7 day forecast isn't very good the 90 day forecast can be horrible but what does your 90 day forecast look like you know on the drought monitor um you you can go get the 90 day temperature 90 day moisture uh, forecast, if they say middle of April, it's going to start raining, I wouldn't be concerned. If they're showing April, May, uh, that drought continuing to encroach, then yeah, absolutely, you've got to be planning right now what you're going to do about stocking. Um, now, I happen to know that the grass whisperer promotes pasture inventorying and using grazing charts and things like that. So more than ever, it is important to, you know, I don't know if you have carried over any feed at all, or if you're starting basically from bare ground everywhere, but as soon as it starts greening up, um, you know, within two weeks, you need to start the inventory process, uh, assessing what you have you know, projecting forward what your expectation is going to be. Uh, if you have a good relationship 
with the livestock owners that you're um, custom grazing for, uh, I would hope that as soon as this is over from your easy chair where you're sitting there, probably drinking a glass of you know bourbon or something, um, you should call them and say, hey, um, have you seen the weather forecast? We might be looking at only 50 to 60% of the you know, cattle we typically run for you. Be prepared for that. You know, the, the key thing to me in a custom grazing relationship is uh, forward communication. If the cattle owner is planning to do something different this year, by God, he better let me know sooner than the day the cattle are supposed to arrive. And by the same token, as the grazier, um, if I'm monitoring the drought situation and I'm really concerned that I'm looking at greatly reduced productivity, I need to let him know as soon as possible that we've got to adjust the numbers. So um, this year, after I listened to several of your videos, um, my, one of my goals is to get around the farm uh, you suggested twice um, within 40 days. And so um, I still want to do that, but this, this, uh, this dry weather and this mm -hmm. being cautious, I'm wondering if that would still be a good strategy or just keep monitoring and hold up, or should I maybe let it go a little taller before I implemented okay. that? Yeah. Um, I've kind of modified my um, 20 or excuse me, twice over in 40 days to, you know, 45, 50 days in Missouri with the fescue and the early growth there, we were able to do that twice around in 40 days. And that's how we subdued the fescue and transitioned those pastures from fescue dominance to being very diverse. Um, quite frankly, I, I'm not sure I have ever made it around our irrigated pastures here twice in 50 days. You know, I, there's been a couple of years when I've made a cycle, first cycle in 25 days. And with, with irrigation, reliability of water, you can do that and uh, make it work. But I've, if I get around you know, first time in 25 days, that means I got to get around the second time in 25 days also. And the pasture's just growing way too fast uh, for me to do that. So I, I, with our irrigated situation here, I have a real challenge getting twice over in 50 days. Um, in Missouri on fescue, it was easy and it seemed a very workable strategy. So we can go back, Steve, to perspectives that have changed over the years. And that's one also. Uh, I still think in the central, in the Midwest and upper Southern United States, where it's tall fescue dominant, uh, I'm still a strong advocate of early aggressive grazing, kind of everywhere else. I'm backed off a little bit from it, haven't abandoned it, but yeah, try for 50 days and it ends up being 60. Well, you're done all right. I, I'll add to that too, Troy. If you're planning for a drought in the year of the drought, you're too late. I, I've been in an area where 
when I moved up here, they told me it was raining all the time. And in, you know, in 20 years, I've probably had what they consider, I wouldn't say 12 or 13 years of drought. <laughs> and I thought I was moving up into a wet area. And once I moved here, I brought all the drought with me. So um, I've been through a lot of droughts and it took me a long time that that land that I, you know, took over and tried to heal. And then I get three years of drought in a row. That's really hard to heal. But yeah. once you get it going and you start planning for that drought in the good years, right? That's the key plan for the drought in the good years. That's when you leave the residue, you build your soil armor, you start fixing that water holding capacity. Then when the drought hits, you can graze harder. You can extend your rest period, make it longer. I can take all the green matter, right? I'll graze it right down. But if you actually look at the soil surface, it's still covered. Right. We've still got, you know, last year and the year before and the year before that's residue covering it and the thatch layer there. We don't see bare soil, but I can take all the green matter on that drought year and I do fine. I don't hurt my stand. But if I haven't already planned for that, if I haven't already built up, built up that water holding capacity, then we take all the green matter. There's nothing left. And then you've got nothing but evaporation. So um, we need to be planning for a drought long before a drought happens. Mm -hmm. that's what I learned over the years. Yeah. You know why so many farmers get themselves in trouble? They say, you know, we had two normal years of rainfall and then we've been in drought for seven or eight years. No, they've had seven or eight years of normal rainfall and they had two exceptional years. And that is a, that, that is how a lot of the uh, homesteading on the, Central U.S. plains and prairies was sold. Um, that you know the rain follows the plow, and yeah, it rains here all the time. Oh, you might have a year or two of drought here, uh, but the reality was that it's usually seven or eight normal years, which is dry, and two very good rainfall years. And everybody pins their hopes on those, you know, two years and believes that's the normal. And it is not. The and, tragedy and a, of optimism. And yep. Jim, I, I, yeah, I'm sure you agree. A drought is relative. If you're in an area that gets 20 inches of rainfall on, on average, a drought is 15. Yes. But if you're in an area that's averaging six inches of rainfall, right? If you get six inches, that's a great year. Yes. And your your species will change because of that, right? The species that, that grow and survive and, and thrive in an area that gets six inches of rain, that's what they're used to. That's the species that are survived there. If they get four inches, then that's a drought for them. Mm -hmm. But in that area where you get 20 inches, you get 15 inches, well, those species can't survive and they literally have a drought, right? So you can't compare environments mm -hmm. to envir environments. Every environment can have a drought. Every environment yeah. can have a really wet year, but the species change in that. So you have to be adjustable and flexible to your environment. That's where the concepts work because they change with the environment. Here's one of the biggest differences between living in a high rainfall productive area like Missouri compared to Idaho. In Missouri, our average annual precipitation was 38 inches. I would much rather have a year with 20% below average rainfall than a year with 20% above average rainfall. Because that year that it's 20% above average, it never comes perfectly. 
it is, you know, gully washers, floods, bad stuff like that. But out here in Idaho, I'll guarantee you, I'd much rather have a year with 20% above. Our, our normal precipitation here is eight inches. So I'd much rather have a year with 20% above normal precipitation than a year with 20% below. So that, that is a big difference between productive environments and uh, semi-arid environments. It's real easy to have too much water in the eastern half of the U.S. and Canada. Thanks, guys. I think one of the, the key things, too, is drought or no drought. Having residue on the land, like when you go into that period of no rainfall, having residue, <coughs> when you do get that initial rainfall, even if it's not enough to fully break your drought, you're going to really actually capture that effective rainfall and you're going to be able to, yeah, make it effective. You're going to be able to actually use it. Whereas, you know, if if you haven't left residue, well, it's all going to run off. We, we saw that a couple of years ago and it's a long story, so I won't get into it. But I, I spoke at a conference a few years ago about exactly this and having that residue to capture the rainfall and, and have it go where it's supposed to go is absolutely key, even if you are going to be in drought all throughout the entire summer. Um, next up, we have Graham Gilcrest. Graham, are you ready to go? I am. Jim, thanks. for awesome. taking, Hi. Thank you, Amber and Stephen. Jim, thanks for taking my my question here um i have a private practice here in, in leduc and one of my colleagues down your way i ran into and spent some time with was roy ferguson down in in tulsa in that neck of the woods my question is at the other end of this process now i know f- farms and ranches are doing taxes this time so somebody should be at least counting the the uh, chips and what happened but as that business owner takes a dollar out of his his operation to fund whatever he needs to do for his family that relates to about seven dollars seven twenty in in sales that that business should be generating in order to to provide for that that family help me connect that number then to your time and space arguments on the revenue side of the equation not just the cost saving side of your discussion okay um if, if you can increase your carrying capacity on the same land resource through a change in management, you know, if you can increase it 20%, that $7 gross revenue has just gone up to 840 gross revenue. If you can increase it by 50% on the same land resource, and we'll have to spend some money on the infrastructure to get us there, at a 50%, you know, that $7, 720, whatever you were talking about, is now up to 10, 1050 uh, into that neighborhood. So it's really about increasing the carrying capacity through management rather than more purchased inputs. Uh, the infrastructure investments that we make in stock water development and fence. Uh, yes, cash flow says they have to be able to pay for that, you know, in this season or next season. Uh, ongoing payback from making those investments are going to be there five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road. And if we're also, through better grazing management, building a more productive land base, like I, I said earlier, 
most of the initial increase we get in carrying capacity is just because we're more effectively capturing, harvesting what we're already growing. Uh, over time, we can actually grow more. And that's why we can continue to see an incremental increase in productivity and carrying capacity several years down the road after making the initial uh, infrastructure investment. You know, that, that um, I had mentioned the 400% increase in um, carrying capacity in uh, one client ranch. Um, they basically paid for the entire fence system in one year's cost savings because it reduced the amount of hay that they fed. The stock water system took two additional years, but they made a huge investment in you know, lump sum dollars to change how they managed that ranch. I mean, in lump sum dollars, it was a scary number. I don't remember what it was uh, because I think about everything on a per acre basis. It was only about $28 per acre when you spread it over the entire ranch. And that's what makes it look affordable because then you look at, well, how many additional AUDs do I have to generate to pay for that $28 per acre investment? And very often I'll, I will use the 50% increase in carrying capacity example. If you can get a 50% increase in carrying capacity by investing $28 an acre in fence and stock water development, you have in essence just bought another acre for $56 with no closing costs, no additional property taxes, none of those things. I would say the cheapest ranch that you will ever buy is the one you create through more effective use of your of the ranch you already own. So if I paraphrase what you're saying, then you've got if you can increase that that capacity, you should be easier to get at the 720 or the $7.20 because that you need that to take it out of your own your family and easier to handle the debt you've got against the land and cows, easier to handle your current liabilities and so on and so forth. Correct. You know what? Um, we start everything with a gross margin analysis. And I always tell people another way to look at gross margin is return to overheads. So as you increase your gross margin, and we look at gross margin per AUD harvested, if you can increase your gross margin per AUD harvested, you are, for every AUD, you have more money left over, you know, to pay against overheads. And, you know, that, 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 that is a huge, huge uh, burden on many ranches is they simply don't carry enough stock, they don't produce enough AUDs per acre to pay for the overheads of that ranch. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll add to that a little bit, Jim. Um, I'm going to sidetrack that a little bit. There was a study done uh, by uh, uh, Darren Qualman. He's a uh, researcher out of Saskatchewan, and he did took the net farm income uh, across all of Can all the Canadian farmers. He did it for like 92 years. Um, I can share that on my uh, Facebook page tomorrow if anybody wants to see it. But basically, the, what he came up with is that the the farmers across Canada over the last 92 years. Now, I think he ended the study in 2000 and 
18 or something like that. Um, from in the in the chart, it's a very powerful graph if you see it. Uh, from 1985 to 2007, 0% of the gross, you know, uh, or gross farm income went to the farmers. Egg business took 100% of the gross farm income. So across the board, farmers made nothing. All of their income came from selling assets, from off-farm income, from unpaid labor, uh, burning up inheritance. Um, and if you took it right to the end of the, the, since 2007, the farmers made a little bit. Um, without seeing the graph, it's kind of hard to explain. But uh, from 1985 to 2017 or 18, whenever they ended that study, the Canadian farmer made 2% of the net return from farming. Ag business took 98%. So when you start looking at grazing and what Jim's talking about here, looking at a gross margin and trying to get more of that dollar back, right? We're not spending so much on fertilizer and chemicals and equipment and, right? We start to actually make a margin on our farm. That's more important than, you know, the gross product on your farm. Uh, that study blew me away when I first saw it. Um, doc, uh, Dr. Darren Qualman out of Saskatchewan. It's a fantastic uh, piece of research. Definitely kind of opens your eyes about, okay, how do, we, how do we develop a system that we don't need all these inputs? And that's, uh, I, I, I mean, that's where Jim's talking about it. Developing a gross margin on your farm, on your operation. Uh, that's where we start to make better returns on our operation. Yeah, there's very similar studies done in the U.S. Uh, showing the actual dollar return, percent return to the farmers is tiny compared to what agribusiness takes. Awesome. Amber? Yeah. Next up, we have Laura Smith. Laura, are you ready to go? I'm using, I'm using my wife's account. Oh, okay. Hi. Hi, Laura. Ran. I don't identify as Laura. Not today. My question is, I'm trying to wrap my head around, uh, we send all our cattle away primarily in the summer. And if the, the landlord says it's going to hold 30 head, Lord willing, you better show up with 30 head. So the only way I can stockpile is at home. And so I stockpiled essentially the, the whole home quarter on the, on the second graze. And I'm trying to establish how do I figure out a value compared to my winter feeding? So in this example, I, I would come home November 1st, either the home quarters burnt off or I start feeding. The, the difference is probably 80 cents a day, but at the same time, I make a good margin on units. I would be able to graze more units had I pushed the home quarter further. So I guess where does the graph meet? Okay, but all of those added units that you could carry because you pushed the home quarter har harder, uh, you have to feed them stored feed, correct? And you're saying that's what takes 80 cents more per day? Correct. Yeah. So that like once I brought the whole herd home, I was only able to graze another uh, in this example uh, on the on the on the, the ground that we grazed on another two weeks. So it, the whole herd at that time was 120 mama cows and pears for two weeks. 
I would have been able to hold quite a few more pairs through the summer had I had I grazed the whole home quarter. So I saved money by not having to feed for two weeks, but I missed the profit on the margin on the on the gross margin on the cow calf pair. Like I said, that right. And you're you you're losing money or at least have a small gross margin on the cow calf pairs because of all the stored feed that you have to end up putting into them? I guess my question is just from your experience, both your experiences, what am I missing? I guess I'm looking at it that I only saved, you know, 70 cents a day. I can feed my cows for $2 a day. Uh, I can graze them for about $1.20. And so to say, what am I missing in this? Because when I look at it, I just want to push the home quarter harder. But I, I believe I'm missing something and not having a bigger stored feed at home. I, I, without actually seeing the numbers, just hearing what you're saying, it sounds to me, if you increase your numbers through the summer, you got cows out on you know some different properties. You could run more cows if you grazed your home quarter in the summer also. Yep. But I, I think the uh, big question is, what does it cost you to feed all of those cows now through the winter? If you carried an extra 30 or 40 cows through the summer because you grazed your home quarter mm-hmm. and you didn't have stockpiled feed there, you now have 120 total cows that you have to st- feed stored feed to. Um, I think you have to run the different scenarios there because very often we have seen situations where the, and I'll use, I I threw that number 120 out there. I don't remember exactly what you said. Um, But if you can run 90 cows and grace more of them through the winter and reduce the winter feeding costs, very often that trade-off makes running 90 cows with less feed expense, bottom line, more profitable than running 120 cows with a lot of winter expense. I'll give a, a perfect example of this. And uh, I've used it before and I've worked with this ranch. They don't mind me saying it. So Padlock Ranch in Wyoming, a big, big ranch. Um, when I first got acquainted with them, they were running 14,000 cows and were basically a break-even deal. Some years they lost money. They dropped down to 8,000 cows because that's what they could graze year-round and eliminated hay feeding and became a very profitable ranch running 8,000 cows, whereas they were a break-even deal running 14,000 cows because of winter feed costs. Uh, they've, you know, they made that change. They've worked some things out and they're, I think they're back up over 10,000, you know, cows now, but doing it with very, very little feeding. And I, th- I think you're looking at the same. Similar. Yeah. Two, yeah s- t- same type of scenarios, just, you know, on a different scale. Yeah. Yeah. The, the follow-up question to that is, 
had had someone ask a great question. I think it was on another webinar. And a cow is a cow in this country. Uh, you, you're going to pay a dollar twenty whether she's a Blackby Semitol had a calf in January and he's going to wean off at like 800 pounds, right? In August, September versus my Mayborn, you know, uh, tiny little grasshopper of a cow. And so is there any, in, in my example, is there any, any research on, can I run bigger cows, get bigger calves in the fall because that, that summer grass is, is cheaper. It's the same money to run a big cow as it is a small cow in the summer, but you got to feed that big cow in the winter. All right. So, so you've got a guy who says you, you can put 40 cows on my place. If 40, if those 40 cows are 1600 pound cows and have, you know, big calves at side when they get there compared to an 1100 pound cow with a 300 pound calf at side, either the 1600 pound cows are going to run his place into the ground or those 1,100-pound cows are just going to thrive, and the calves are going to grow really good because there's more feed than they need. But, I mean, it, it is a stocking, effective stocking rate question. The 1,600-pound cow with a big calf out there is consuming 50% more feed every day yeah. than what the 1,100-pound cow is. And the pasture does not automatically grow 50% more feed because you put a big cow out there. Either the pasture is going to get wrecked, or your cows would do very well. It's out, it's def, it sounds like it's out of balance. It's yeah, I think they're just used to getting paid a certain amount per day, and if mm -hmm. you, even if you wanted to bring them a, a U, right? They they still want a buck a day, what whatever it is. They don't want to tell the neighbors they got any less. I think mm -hmm. still okay. All right, thank you. Yeah, um, to to get. Your, your question was, is there a scenario where a bigger cow makes sense? Yes. Um, I have yet to find it. I would agree with that. I've, I, to me, it's the number of cows is more the issue. One of, one of my biggest mentors, too, when I was uh, first getting into this was uh, his comment to me was that you can always have, uh, or sorry, yeah, you can, you can always have too many cows. You can never have too much grass or you can never have too much cash. Okay, so having too many cows is more the issue than if we can manage for our animals and every every environment is different, right? The 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 economics really tells you the answer. The size of the animal, yeah, that's something you got to figure out on your own. Um a lot of times it's having too many animals. I, Jim already talked about the uh, uh I had a similar situation where I went to a, a farm, they were running 2000 cows. Um they were a uh, uh, at a loss, they were losing money. They dropped down to running 700 cows and then stopped feeding hay. But they utilized their lowland in the winter. Uh, they had like 3,000 acres of lowland. Instead of trying to graze that in the summertime, they saved it to the winter and then supplemented on it. So they dropped from 2,000 cows to 700 cows, and all of a sudden they were profitable, right? So it's not necessarily you know, the number of cows you're running, right? Just because you're bigger doesn't mean you're making more money. Sometimes by dropping the number of cows, you can actually make more money because you're more profitable on a per cow basis. 
And that comes down to your gross margin analysis, like Jim said. Um, we've got we've to make sure our, our profit centers are making a, a good margin. It's not the, the gross revenue that is important. It's not how low your costs can get. It's the difference between them. That's the margin. Great answers, guys. <laughs> Next up, we have Gord Kozrowski. I probably said your name wrong. I'm sorry, Gord. No, that's good. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, hi. I'm, I'm in southwest Saskatchewan. And uh, I love maps. And I, I'm, I've been playing with the uh, online pasture management programs like uh, On Pasture and Maya Grazing. And I just wondered if you like them or if you had a favorite. Uh, okay. Um, I, I have to say Maya Grazing because our company does market Maya Grazing. There was, you know, again, 20 years ago, one of those things I thought I would do is develop you know, the, the whole pasture record keeping software system. And I never got around to it. So I, but I've been looking for a long time for a program would do that would do the things that I wanted a record program to do. And I looked at uh, pasture map uh, three or four years ago. There were too many things that, you know, a number that I wanted to get out of it that it wasn't giving me. And Maya Grazing came across my desk and, pretty well did what I wanted it to do. So we got uh, involved with Maya Grazing. This will be embarrassing for me to say, uh, you know, I've got, I've got our place mapped out and everything there, but I, I'd been doing pasture inventories, grazing wedges, grazing projections, all through spreadsheet programs that I've developed over the years. I know how that works. Um, and I have the same excuse that everybody uses for everything. You know, I'm a really busy guy. And um, so I am not at this moment actually using my grazing uh, in my planning because it's been easier for me to uh, just stick with the tools that I know how to use and they're already um, in place. But when, when the cattle come back up here this spring, it is my intention. Yes, it is my intention that I will start with uh, Maya grazing, keeping my uh, daily records and moves and everything in Maya grazing this year. Right. Yeah. But the main difference I noticed was, uh, I think, on pasture, you could put in the gates, which seemed to be a good idea if you're sharing it with people on your ranch. You can put in the gates. I'm, I'm not familiar enough yeah, with the, the detail of it to know exactly what you I don't mean. think my I don't I don't think my grazing lets you spot the gates on the on the map. Maybe it does. Maybe not. Oh, I, 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 I think you can, but it might not have the same function between the, the, the two programs. I mean, anything that you can do in Google Earth, you can do in. Maya Grazing. Oh, that's good. That was my main question, and I won't take hey, the point. Hey, 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 hey. Uh, since I am um, in, in the business of grazing products, something new that we've just started handling, and some of you have probably seen the videos, and maybe there's someone who's used it, uh, as an alternative to the batch lat, bat latch, you know, for doing multiple moves per day, we have a uh, polywire lifter from Penagro in Argentina. And so um, 
rather than a gate opening and, you know, the spring just springing back, it elevates the poly wire like a classic lift gate. And it's got an audible, you know, that goes off when that happens so that the cattle get trained to it. And then they go under the, the poly wire. Uh, that's another, because we just got this and I don't have cattle here now. I obviously haven't used it personally yet, but man, it looks slick. And so I'm going to do some um, moves with that this spring when we get uh, cattle up here. Yeah. So go to our website, check out the Penagro uh, polywire lifter. Awesome. Thanks. Amber, you got another one? Yeah, I, I just want to add to that quickly. So at the Grow Heifer Pasture, Grow does a lot of this type of stuff, but we also do a lot of research. And one of the things that we've been doing, Steve is on the board of directors and, and had a big hand in doing one of our trials right now. Yes, don't shake your head at me. Um, and with that trial, so we're using all different cell shapes um, and then six different management styles. So we're doing rotational grazing, but we're doing an alleyway system. So we've got different water systems in there. And this is all on one quarter of land. But one of the things that I've implemented is different ways of managing um, our grazing and, and how we're record keeping on it. And I we are using Maya grazing with it. And I have to say, I have loved the ease of use of the app itself and the ability to, when I send out one of our summer students to go and move the animals, I can simply take a screenshot and say, hey, I want them in paddock too. Um, and it's all latched out. So, so I will say that I, I've been really impressed with my grazing. I haven't played with pasture map all that much. Um, theirs is really expensive compared to my grazing and I'm cheap, <laughs> but yeah. And Steve's is the cheapest of all his way of, of <laughs> your grazing chart. I've been using the grazing chart for years. Uh, I've made my own maps and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't pay a, a per monthly fee. So I'm, I'm pretty content to stay the way I am. I mean, yes, they're, they're very nice. And if, if that's something you need to, to kick into gear and actually get you managing your pastures, I a hundred percent agree with it. Um, they're very handy. Um, you know, whatever form of, of pasture management you do, that's great. I think it's a huge step forward. If you're taking that step, great. Um, whether it's pasture map or Maya grazing or any other type of, of way of managing your pastures, uh, 100%, I'm behind you. Manage your pastures. Uh, that's, a, that's a big step forward, I think. Um, next up, we have Sandy Laurie. Sandy, are you ready to go? I'm here. Oh, perfect. Good evening, everybody, and thanks for doing this. I'm from central Alberta, Calgary, Red Deer Corridor to the west. And I'd just like, Jim, if you can repeat that I've heard before, the indicators of when we're when we're grazing what what's the grass supposed to look like when we go in what are we looking at when we want to leave what's it look like when we come back after a rest uh fall dormant grazing what uh are we doing to that as we graze it long short after the dormant stage and those kinds of things just okay. repeat what i'm supposed to know <clears throat> okay um so there's Criteria for rangeland, there's criteria for productive pasture. I'll do both of them um, as I typically use them. So um, ideally, 
what we're looking at on rangeland is three emerged leaves on a grass tiller as being the growth stage at which it is safe to graze. Now, we're going to prefer there be four or five, but uh, the cattle have to be eating something somewhere. And so three leaf stage is basically when the plant has what we would call a positive carbohydrate balance, meaning there's enough active photosynthesis to support the new growth and uh, be storing carbohydrates. Uh, at fewer than three leaves, typically uh, the plant is still using some of that stored energy to support growth. So three leaf stages where we would begin grazing in a rangeland setting. Now, um, you know, our, our range growing season here where we are, we're at 6,000 foot elevation. It, you know, literally can frost almost any night of the year. So our, our range growing season, depending on elevation, is a maximum of about 60 to 65 days. And at higher elevation, you know, it's just 40 days. So um, most of what we end up grazing is in phase three. You know, it, it will be a seed head um, on the plants. Um, some of these range species, three leaves is the most they're going to produce in a year. Others will have, you know, four or five. Uh, but our starting point there is leaving or start, starting with three leaves. Leaving that field, we want tillers to have a residual bit of leaf on it. If it is bitten right down the stem and there is no leaf axle, you know, left on that plant, preferably we'd like to see a couple leaf axles left on there. That's how we want to leave it, not bitten off just to a stem. That makes sense? Yes. That so sounds good. Keep going. Okay. In a productive environment, so we got these center pivots out here. If we wait for three-leaf stage before we graze anything out here, um, that pretty well guarantees, you know, with this idea of getting around twice in 50 days, we're going to be heading out before we get through the first cycle. So we actually begin grazing at uh, about two, two and a half leaf stage, but we're take, we move every day here. So we take a bite and we're off of it. And the paddocks that get grazed first that are, you know, bitten at less than three leaf stage, we will give them a longer recovery. Grazing, I love grazing the pivots. Now, some people think that it's just a clockwork. You just start grazing in one point and you just go in a circle, 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 circle. That's not the way it is at all uh, for several reasons. Um, one of which is the, the pastures, the paddock, the strip that was grazed earliest in the season, bitten when it was not at a carbohydrate positive level, that's going to take longer to recover. So something that maybe was grazed a week to 10 days later will actually be ready to graze before that one is. And so um, we will jump over some of those early grazed ones to allow them more days of recovery to make sure that they get clear out to, you know, four or five leaves there. 
And then people say, well, how long does it need to rest? It isn't a matter of days. It, um, you know, I, I talked about how important time was, but recovery is not a matter of days. It's physiologically, what is the plant doing? And I generally tell people that the recovery period needs to allow three new leaves to emerge after the grazing event. And if you delay the second grazing until you have three emerged leaves out there, you will not be stressing the carbohydrate status on that plant. And same thing, um, we want, we don't necessarily have to have a full pointed leaf left in the residual, but we want to see stems with leaf axles, you know, left behind. So there could be, there's bit off half the leaf, but there's still the base part of the leaf is, is there. Yes. Yep. Okay. Good. What about uh, fall dormant grazing? Um, uh, okay. All right. <clears throat> um, now I have to talk about the difference between sod forming grasses and bunch grasses. When we talk about carbohydrate storages, storage organs, in a sod forming grass, we, we have the underground rhizomes and there's that's carbohydrate storage. And then shoots can come off of that wherever there's a bud along that rhizome. So there's a lot of stored energy below ground in a sod forming grass, smooth brown grass, western wheat grass, Kentucky bluegrass, things like that. We get into bunch grasses, blue bunch wheat grass, Timothy, meadow brown. The storage carbohydrates are more in the stem basis. It's actually above ground. Yes, there is storage below ground, but there's a lot of stored energy in that stem base. Um, in a grass like meadow brown, that goes two to three inches up in there. A grass like um, big blue stem, tall grass prairie, it might be six, eight inches of stored carbohydrates above ground there. And so what we, this is where it becomes important to understand the species in your pasture and what you want to, you know, favor. <clears throat> and so we want to leave, if we're favoring bunch grasses, we need to leave enough stubble behind, enough residual behind that they haven't bitten into that stored carbohydrate. So even in the winter time, if you can leave, you know, three or four inches residual out there, that is a good thing. And I know there's plenty of drier environments where the total height of the grass is only five or six inches. And just by the nature of grazing, it's probably going to end up at two inches. And if that's the nature of your environment, you want to end up with that two inches there. Basically what the animal takes off in a single bite. Um, you don't want them going back and biting another inch off of that stored carbohydrate and putting your total residual down to just one inch. I think it's a real good guideline. You look at what a cow takes off in the first bite, and that's really what you should leave behind. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome, Jim. I love that. I'm not even going to add to that. Jim, we are out of time. We have loads of questions ahead. What's your, what's your, uh, what's your night like? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go pour myself a glass of scotch and I'll be back. Okay. Awesome. Um, we're going to, uh, officially uh end the night i'd like to thank everybody for coming out um 
Jim's coming back. He's going to, you know, answer a few more questions for us, but we're out of time. Um, boy, we've got tons of questions left and I, I, I so appreciate that. Everybody's so keen here. Um, thank you very much for the gateway research organization for, uh, you know, hosting us and the, the great wooded forge association for helping out as well. Um, this has been a great evening and I knew Jim was going to be a very popular speaker. Um, I was worried at the beginning of this, that we had all our big speakers at the, at the, beginning of this but no we, we've got some very top-notch speakers at the end too i uh, uh very impressed at, at the uh, uh quality of speakers that we're getting here thank you very much for grow and uh and the gray wooded forge association for that mm -hmm.